If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 717. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. You've already heard about that. But of course, this is the last week to get in on my latest class, which is a different kind of class, something I've never done before McClanahan Academy Live. It's open until October 14th. So if you don't enroll before the 14th, you are going to miss it. So you want to get in over there. Get on that uh, roster. Get on McClanahan Academy Live. I do limit enrollment, so head over and do it. Uh, you're not going to be upset with the class. In fact, you're really going to love it. It's a great way to contact me directly to be able to answer. I can answer all your questions live on air. I mean, it's it's awesome. So you're going to want it, and it's on a great topic, causes of the Civil War. So um, it's a fantastic class, and I think you're going to be uh, just in love with the content and also the format. So uh, you can purchase other classes there. I have, of course, over 20 on-demand classes, too, that uh, are also fantastic that you can get. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the little heart under the, the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. You can support it that way. You can also go to anchor.fm and become a supporter there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially, but then also you can... Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review. Leave that text review. Comment on it wherever you can to bump the algorithm so more people see the show. And also share it around on social media. Tell your friends and enemies about it. It's always fun to hear the enemies and what they have to say and all the contortions they go into to try to disprove everything I talk about on this program. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and that is something that was pretty, pretty prominent uh, last week. And it has to do with the Supreme Court. I like to talk about the court here because we've got a really interesting court now. Not that they make the right decisions all the time because they don't, particularly when it comes to originalism. But there's a new justice, Justice Jackson, on the bench. Of course, this is a Biden appointee. And Justice Jackson made uh, quite a splash last week, according to the left, because of her progressive originalism, quote-unquote. That's what they're calling it. Progressive originalism. Now, uh, the issue at hand at this point was a, an Alabama law, a redistricting law, that had gerrymandered districts. Uh, of course, if you don't know, Alabama has seven congressional districts, and one of those districts essentially is a majority-minority district. And so the left challenges in court, saying it violates the 1965 Civil Rights Act, particularly as this piece I'm going to talk about an amendment to that act in 1982, which said that uh, black Americans or black Alabamians or whoever it was had to have a realistic shot of getting their preferred candidate elected. Now, this opens the door to a number of interesting questions. 
First of all, do black Americans vote in monolithic groups, right? Is it always, do black Americans always vote the same? And why don't we apply this to white Americans? I mean, do white Americans all vote the same or Chinese Americans or Korean Americans or Mexican Americans? Uh, take your pick, Irish Americans, Italian Americans. Do all these people vote the same simply because of their background, their race, their religion? We know this isn't the case. And we're okay with saying this about black Americans for some odd reason. It's almost as if people don't think these people can think for themselves. And I, even Jackson essentially gets into this. Right, So that Clarence Thomas is an outlier and Jackson would be the norm. I find this fascinating as just in terms of a study, right? A kind of a uh, human geography study or a sociology study or a psychology study and how this works. Group dynamics, human geography, how all this stuff works with all these different people. And why is it that we can assume that black Americans are all going to vote the same way? just because they're black. And if they don't vote for the left, well, of course, then there's some kind of oddball, some kind of weirdo, some kind of Uncle Tom. I had a colleague uh, for years, and um, she was black. And I remember one day uh, she came to my office, and she knocked on the door, and she was a Trump supporter. And she said she didn't want anybody to know. Uh, because it was kind of a, you know, she said, I, I, I like Trump. I, I think he's great. Um, and that's, that was fascinating to me uh, because she was trying to, she didn't want people to know that because she thought it could create, you know, uh, waves or something else. But um, this is the unfortunate part about black Americans and lumping them all together and thinking they're just all going to vote the same way because of the skin color. And the Republican Party has been thinking this way since the 1860s. And now the Democrat Party tends to think that way. Essentially, the people that tend to think that way are progressives. Progressives believe that Democrats, uh, I'm sorry, that black Americans, progressives, Democrats, Republicans, whoever it is, progressives were the Republicans in the 1860s. They believe black Americans can essentially be duped into voting one way or another uh, just by giving out the goods or, you know, take your pick of whatever policy they want to emphasize. And they think that's going to be a winning strategy. And of course, if they can get black Americans to vote this way, then they're going to win elections. Now, in Alabama, blacks make up about 30% of the state population, a little less. I think it's about 28%, but somewhere in that, 28 to 33%. I can't remember the exact number now. And so uh, if you look at the, uh, the state legislature, well, uh, for the state legislature, um, the, uh, the state legislature is about 25 to 30% black for the Alabama state legislature. The argument here, of course, is that with seven congressional districts, if they only get one of those seats, well, then they don't have the 33% of the vote in the state. Again, thinking that just because they're black, they're going to support particular candidates. I mean, you could have a black Republican uh, in Alabama, and there's no saying that won't happen at some point. You could have a black Republican uh, elected, and would that then be, would they be underrepresented still? So, I mean, there's there's all kinds of dynamics to think about this, but Essentially, what the left is upset about is that they don't have a liberal black Republican or more than one liberal black or black candidate, Democrat, whoever it is, liberal black candidate or liberal black representative in the state of Alabama. They just have one. Uh, so, or their preferred candidate, whatever, whoever that person is, right? So I find this to be fascinating how this works, but I want to get into Jackson's use of quote-unquote progressive originalism and explain how she's not really being an originalist at all. 
In fact, she's being a corporationist. She's distorting even the meaning of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the 14th Amendment, which she relies on so heavily. Now, the 15th Amendment is another issue. It does say that in the 15th Amendment, the Congress can pass appropriate legislation to enforce the amendment. So you can make an argument that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is designed to enforce the 15th Amendment and therefore it's constitutional. However, there are some parts of it that I think are completely unconstitutional. And I think you could say that if any legislation was designed to disfranchise anyone, I mean, say a literacy test or a poll tax, which of course we know those are unconstitutional now because we have a constitutional amendment against it. Uh, but if you had something designed to specifically target a group of people and keep them from voting, that would be a violation of the 15th Amendment. But we know none of that is happening. We know that everyone can vote in the state of Alabama as long as you're over 18 years of age and you're a U.S. citizen. Uh, we know that you can vote. Uh, we know that uh, there, no black Alabamians are being disfranchised. No one's being told they can't vote. No one's being forced to do something they're not, that's illegal to vote. And so this argument that we somehow don't have the right congressional districts set up is a bad argument based on the 15th Amendment. Now, what Jackson's going to do, though, is interesting. She's going to say, well, look, the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment make clear that race can be used as a determining factor in legislation, particularly when it comes to civil rights legislation. The state of Alabama is arguing that the Constitution and the 14th Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, are race blind. And so, therefore, you cannot pass legislation creating majority-minority districts. That would be in violation of the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. So Jackson's argument is, that, no, 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 the Equal Protection Clause was put there to ensure, quote-unquote, civil rights for minorities. And that, again, opens several other doors to what do these terms actually mean. And so I'm going to give you a history lesson on these things. And if Jackson... Of course, she's not going to listen to this, but if she ever did, she would get a history lesson on what these things mean too, and she would be shown that she's incorrect and in how she is even uh, using this in her oral arguments before the court. In fact, it's a pretty bad argument, um, and it's ahistorical. So she says it's historical, and of course, the left is... I remember yeah, fawning all of this. Ian Milheiser, uh, Jackson's so good at this. Jackson's so good. This is why Biden put her on the bench. She's so good at this kind of stuff. Well, in reality, she's not. She's not really that good at all. In fact, she's cherry-picking and using language, which we're going to talk about later on this week, uh, to uh, a distortion of language to advance her claim. So let me read this piece from, uh, I think it's from Vox. No, it's from Slate. I'm sorry, one of these idiotic websites, Slate. Uh, and it's titled, this is by Mark Stern. And it says, uh, here, Justice Jackson used progressive originalism to refute Alabama's attack on the Voting Rights Act. And so it begins, for decades, conservative justices have made a specific point to support many of their rulings on race. They insist that the Constitution is entirely colorblind, prohibiting any consideration of race under all circumstances. During oral arguments in Merrill v. Milligan on Tuesday, a case they will attempt to use to eradicate what remains of the Voting Rights Act, they advance this theory once again. This time, however, Justice Jackson refused to cede ground to the revisionist history. In a series of extraordinary exchanges with Alabama Solicitor General Edmund LaCour, Jackson explained that the entire point of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments was to provide equal opportunity for formerly enslaved people, using color-conscious remedies whenever necessary to put them on the same plane as whites. 
It was a masterclass in progressive originalism that illustrated exactly why Jackson is such a crucial addition to this ultra-conservative court. Now, there's a lot of loaded language in that. Okay, and I'm actually going to read to you a quote, a quote from Representative, uh, Representative Wilson of Massachusetts in the 1860s when he was talking about the Civil Rights Act, which, of course, the 14th Amendment was based on. And that, of course, would then lead to the 14th Amendment, right? And they worked together. Civil Rights Act was knocked down. The 14th Amendment was then put there to ensure the Civil Rights Act, or at least the principles of the Civil Rights Act, and the language of the Civil Rights Act would be codified in the Constitution. So it's important to look at both things together because the 14th Amendment was essentially a regurgitation of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So when you say that they're going to put, uh, to use race to put people in the same plane as whites, what does that actually mean? What is the same plane as whites? Was it designed to create equity, as the, as the catchphrase now, equity? Or was it designed to ensure that black Americans, black Southerners in particular, would have, when you say the same plane, would have the same access to the courts and to own property as whites did? Which is exactly what the Civil Rights Act was designed to do. Okay, so I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but I'm going to read this piece a little further. Merrill involves a challenge to Alabama's new congressional districts, which constitute a flagrant racial gerrymander. Republican lawmakers packed most black residents into one sprawling district, then gave white voters control over the remaining six districts. As a result, black voters control just 14% of the congressional districts, despite making up nearly a third of the state's population. So, I mean, there's a simple solution to this. We'll then dilute them down to where there's only a third of every single congressional district. So in that way, if, if whites vote together and blacks vote together, well, then they would never have any kind of power based on race. Now, we know that all whites don't vote together. We know there are liberal whites. We know there are conservative whites. We know there are libertarian whites. We know there are conservative nationalist whites. We know all kinds of things, right? White people don't vote in monolithic blocks. We also know that black people uh, don't always do this either, though in, in larger numbers, they tend to vote the same way, right? So you could probably say that about 95% 90 to 95% of black Americans vote for leftist candidates. I mean, that's just polling data plays that out. So the idea, of course, is that if you can have blacks control a district, well, then you're definitely going to get a liberal. And this is the point of all of this, right? It's about political power. The people that are suing are saying, we don't have enough political power in the state of Alabama. We don't have enough political power in the United States based on race. So, uh, I mean, this is, this is what's at stake here. I tell you all the time, it's always about power. It's always about power. This is what it means. And you could say it's that way for you know, conservatives in the state of Alabama. They want power. The left wants power, which is why they're, they're trying to challenge this based on race. The piece continues, the Voting Rights Act was designed to outlaw this kind of dilution of racial minorities' voting power. Indeed, Congress amended the law in 1982 to make it crystal clear that race-based vote dilution is impermissible. It was no surprise then that the three-judge district court, including two Donald Trump nominees, threw out Alabama's new map in January as a violation of the VRA, Voting Rights Act. 
His 225-page opinion painstakingly explained that the state had an obligation to create a second district in which black voters had a real shot at electing their preferred representative. But the Supreme Court froze that ruling in February by a 5-4 vote and heard arguments Tuesday. So, again, I mean, who's to say that they wouldn't, that, again, a black American's preferred candidate wouldn't be a conservative? This is a strange way of looking at everything, and it's it's based on this old concept, as I mentioned at the beginning of this program, that blacks vote one way and that there's no deviation from that. Why do we know that they wouldn't be they wouldn't have a favor a conservative candidate? How do we know that? It's an assumption. So the piece says Alabama's argument is that the law, as interpreted by the lower court, violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So you see, at the heart of this, it's not really a debate about voting. It's a debate about incorporation. It really is a debate about incorporation, and essentially that's what Jackson's going to do in this. She's going to argue, with a distortion of the word civil rights, that um, this is really about incorporation. Even though Section 2 of the VRA compels states to ensure that the political process is, quote, equally open to participation by all races, which obviously requires the use of race to guarantee equality. Now, wait a second here. Um, if it's equal, are blacks being barred from participating? I mean, this is a real question. Is anybody being barred from participating? You can go vote. I mean, that's like saying, well, some people should have a guarantee that their candidate's going to win. So in a racially, in a majority-minority district, if all black people are going to vote one way, well, then they're guaranteed that they're can. What about the white people in that district? They're essentially, they're not, they don't have equal participation then either because their candidate won't win then, I guess. I mean, so they're never going to have their candidate win. So what about those people? This is a real question, and in fact, that's what, as a piece later on says, is what Alabama is getting to. Well, if we're going to say that black people don't have, I mean, if, if we have these districts and they, their preferred candidate has no shot of winning, yet we should try to create a situation where they have a preferred candidate with a chance of winning, what about white voters in majority, uh, minority majority districts, right? Well, they don't have, their preferred candidate's not going to win. Well, how is that fair? Well, this is where Jackson says, well, wait a second here. Race was at the heart of all this, and it's all about civil rights. But what did that actually mean in 1866, as I'll get into? What did that actually mean? What did civil rights mean in 1866 or 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified, supposedly? The piece says, which obviously requires the use of race to guarantee equality. The state is arguing that any consideration of race in redistricting violates residents' constitutional rights, even if race is used to safeguard black voters' political power. But again, political power is a loaded term. Political power. And see, they mention it's all about power, right? Right there. It's all about power. But what about white voters in those districts? They lose all their political power. Ostensibly. I mean, theoretically, if, if whites are going to vote one way and blacks the other way, then they, but we know that it's not the case. You're going to have liberal whites in those districts. You're going to have conservative whites. You're going to have liberal whites in districts where uh, black people are the minority, uh, and they might vote for a candidate that would, uh, black people would support. So, I mean, nobody is, nobody is being barred participation here. 
but they may not have the same amount of power once the person is elected because their preferred candidate may not win. But no one's being barred in terms of participating. This is the key point of this. The goal is to get the court to say that the VRA cannot require the creation of districts in which racial minorities make up a majority because such race-conscious line drawing would infringe on equal protection. I actually agree with this. I mean, if we're going to say it's all about participation, well, then you can't really draw any... And look, there are, there are people that are saying the court is going to side here with Alabama, and that would essentially undo these, uh, these districts that are majority-minority districts. They would go away. Now, this is the court, right? So this can change in any time. People could have another lawsuit, and the court could sign a different way. But regardless, the real issue here is the history that Jackson, I want to get to the history that Jackson is supposedly relying on to frame her opinion and her questioning in the oral arguments. Justice Sonia Sotomayor has contested this race-blind theory of equal protection in the past. But on Tuesday, she let the newest justice offer Alabama a history lesson. And Jackson was having none of it. Quote, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that the that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem, Jackson told the Alabama Solicitor General. I understand that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And then when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal, equal, equal Protection Clause, excuse me, the 14th and 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way. They, that they were, in fact, trying to ensure that the people who had been discriminated against the freedmen during the Reconstruction period were actually brought equal to everyone else in society. Now, end quote. They were brought equal to everyone else in society. Now, what did that mean? That is a loaded term. They were brought equal. So when we use that word equal, then, of course, we have to define how the people at the time considered what that word equal meant. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this because I'm going to use a Massachusetts representative who was Speaker of the House at the time, Wilson of Massachusetts. I'm going to use this. I'm going to use his words so I can show you what equal actually meant and how Jackson is using a 21st century uh, definition of a term that the people who wrote the document would not have recognized at all. And when they talked about equal protection and equal rights and civil rights, which they used, what they meant about that. The justice went deeper, citing the report of the Joint Committee on Reconstruction from 1866 produced by the lawmakers who drafted the 14th Amendment. Quote, that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. But what are rights? She doesn't define it. She just uses this ambiguous term, rights. What are those rights? What was the 14th Amendment and the 1866 Civil Rights Act designed to do? Because she brings that up later. I'll get to that. She continued, the legislature introduced that amendment, said that unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will, all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea in terms of the remedy. But what was he talking about there? What kind of rights was he actually talking about? Was it equality in all rights? 
Was it uh, equity, as we talk about today, when Kamala Harris says we have to ensure that some people get more than others? This is the idea. Well, we got to ensure that black voters get more than white voters. They have more of a chance to get their preferred candidate in these majority-minority districts than anyone else. Is that what that was? Is that what they meant by equality? Then they defined it. Jackson went on to note that the one purpose of the 14th Amendment was to provide a constitutional foundation to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which, quote, specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. That's the point of that act, to ensure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same as the white citizens. What are those civil rights? She doesn't really define it. She doesn't define it. She just leaves that hanging out there because she's using a definition of civil rights and rights that was not used in 1866. Again, I will define it for you here in just a minute. With that background, she told Alabama Solicitor General, I'm trying to understand your position on Section 2, which by its plain text is doing the same thing. It's saying you need to identify people in this community who have less opportunity and less ability to participate and ensure that it's remedied. Well, but they are participating. Who's saying they're not, right? So are you saying that because you have a majority-minority district or not a majority-majority, so if, if blacks are not the majority in the district, they can't participate? They can certainly participate. They can go out and do everything else that a white voter can do and try to persuade people to vote for their candidate. There's nobody saying they can't do that. They can go vote. They can do all of that. This is a weak, weak, weak argument. Right? Participation is simply being involved in the process. It's being able to vote, which the 15th Amendment took care of, and it's being able to, to quote-unquote, participate in the process. You can you can go door to door, you can produce flyers, you can you can be involved in rallies and political events. All of that is participation, just like any white voter, just like any Asian voter, just like any Hispanic voter. You can do any of that. No one's saying you can't. But when they don't get their power, well, that's the problem, right? It's a race-conscious effort, as you have indicated. I'm trying to understand why that violates the 14th Amendment, given the history and background of the 14th Amendment. And then, of course, Slate says, Jackson is plainly correct. No, she's not. In fact, she's incorrect. She's plainly incorrect. She's plainly distorting everything, as the history of the amendment and, of course, the Civil Rights Act points out. The framers of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection, for what? And the 15th Amendment, which bars race-based voting discrimination, no one's being discriminated against, explicitly supported race-conscious remedies to civil rights violations. Like what? What were these civil rights violations? They intended the post-Civil War amendments to guarantee equal opportunity to black citizens. But what does that mean? Guarantee equal opportunity. Equal opportunity to do what? Again, just leave the term out there. Equal opportunity. You still have an equal opportunity to vote. You still have an equal opportunity to, to participate in the election process. Doesn't mean you're going to win. It's like saying we need to have a situation where certain people are guaranteed to win. Well, is that is that just? No, of course it's not. This is what people think. Combating deep-rooted prejudice to the white race against black Americans that helped them secure a just and constitutional position, quote, end quote. As legal historians have persuasively explained, the framers readily took race into account when necessary to redress past discrimination. 
So much about Alabama's black communities today, their location within the region, their economic hardships, their struggles to exercise equal political power as a result of past discrimination. Congress wanted the VRA to ensure that these communities could finally participate equally in the political process. That's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to ensure that Congress could get votes. More or less, the Republican Party could win elections. It's not to participate. It's not some altruism here. We want these people. Oh, gosh, these poor people. Let's get them participating. This is what we need to do. No, as Stas even says, eh, it's about elections. We want to win elections, so these people are going to vote for us, so let's do all we can to get those people out there voting and in ways that will rig the system and game the system, so they vote for us. And so we win, and then we can do what we want. Through race-conscious redistricting, if necessary, Alabama Republicans want the opposite. They seek to impose a devastating racial gerrymander under the theory that protecting black citizens' voting power would violate the 14th Amendment, 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Again, the issue here is the 14th Amendment. The issue here is incorporation. The issue here is this definition of what is equal protection. What is being protected by the 14th Amendment? You say civil rights? What, how do they define civil rights? So, let's get into that. Let's, uh, let's read what the first section of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 says. Okay? Because this is the important part. They define what civil rights and equal protection means. It says, quote, being enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled, that all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. Now that sounds a lot like the 14th Amendment because it is, right? I mean, the 14th Amendment basically took the language from the Civil Rights Act and put it into the, to an amendment, okay? And such citizens of every race and color without regard to any previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall have the same right in every state and territory of the United States to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties, and to none other, any law, statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom to the contrary notwithstanding. All right, so what does that mean? It means simply this. What they're trying to do with the 14th Amendment and the 1866 Civil Rights Act is make sure that former slaves can sue in court, they have access to the courts, and they can own property. I mean, that's what this is doing. It's so they can sue in court and have property. We know this is exactly what it meant because they said it. So when it's taught, well, we need to make sure there's equity here. There's justice when it comes to being able to participate in the process. Nobody's saying they can't participate. No one's saying that at all. But do black Americans in the South have access to property and sue in court? And access to the courts? Of course. Are they going to face the same penalties, pains, punishments? Well, at least um, uh, on the surface, I mean, we, we could say we have blind justice. We know it doesn't always work that way, even for white Americans. And that's a whole other issue in and of itself. But the fact is, the thing that the Civil Rights Act tried to do was ensure that blacks could own property and they could sue in court. Because that was seen as having equal rights, civil rights, as... White Americans. And how do we know this? Because they said it. 
So I'm going to use Raoul Berger and his government by judiciary, and I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from Raoul Berger on this particular issue when it comes to uh, civil rights. Okay, Again, this is Wilson, the House Chairman. Not, I said Speaker of the House. The House Chairman. I, I misspoke. House Chairman Wilson on the Civil Rights Bill. And this, this is when it was asked, what does civil rights and immunities mean? And he said this. This is what civil rights and immunities mean when they were drafting the legislation that became the Civil Rights Act, and then, of course, which led to the 14th Amendment. Quote, What do these terms mean? Do they mean that in all things, civil, social, political, all citizens, without distinction of race or color, shall be equal? By no means can they be so construed. By no means can they be so construed. This is the guy that wrote it. This is what he said it meant. Now, you see, Jackson is falling into the trap of reading it. A text. She's, she's not originalist. She's a textualist. So I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read what it says here. And then I'm, but when you look at what people were arguing about, right, when this thing was going through the, 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 uh, the process of being voted on, this is what people said about it. Nor do they mean that all citizens shall sit on juries or that their children shall attend the same schools. These are not civil rights and immunities. All citizens shall sit on juries or that children will attend the same schools. These are not civil rights and immunities. This is a massive, this is a guy that wrote a three-volume work on the war uh, about the quote-unquote slave power. This is a man that was an, an ardent abolitionist. This is a man who believed the South needed to be punished. But here he is. In 1866, saying that the Civil Rights Act, the 14th Amendment, none of that stuff really applies to schools or juries, and all people have to sit on juries. Of course not. You have access to the courts. You can sue. You can sue. You can enforce contracts. You can be parties and give evidence. You can inherit, purchase, lease, sell, and hold, and convey real personal property. But it doesn't really say anything about juries. Now, I did say eventually juries would be brought into this, but... Um, it's not saying anything about that. This is what Jackson's relying on. These people are going to have the same status. So certainly they wanted to ensure that former slaves could have access to the court and get property. This is what they said the Civil Rights Act of the 14th Amendment did. What? Well, what is the meaning of civil rights and immunities? He says, well, what is the meaning of these two phrases? What are civil rights? Wilson says this, quote, I understand civil rights to be simply the absolute rights of individuals such as, quote, the right of personal security, the right of personal liberty, and the right to acquire and enjoy property. End quote. What about immunities? Well, Wilson said this, that blacks should not be subjected to, quote, obligations, duties, pains, and penalties from which other citizens are exempted, this is the spirit and scope of the bill, and it does not go one step beyond. Does not go one step beyond. Now, that's pretty definitive about what these people thought. So it didn't mean that you were going to win elections. It didn't mean that you were, you were guaranteed to have power. It didn't mean any of that. 
Nothing. It meant that you would have participation, and that's it. But you see, the left is going beyond that. It meant that you had equality when it came to the courts and to get property and to participate. But it didn't mean you were going to win. M. Russell Thayer of Pennsylvania stated that, quote, to avoid any misapprehension as to what the fundamental rights of citizenship are, he said, quote, they are stated in the bill. The same section goes on to define with great particularity the civil rights and immunities which are to be protected by the bill. And he added, quote, when those civil rights which are first referred to in general terms, that is, civil rights and immunities, are subsequently enumerated, the enumeration precludes any possibility that the general words which have been used can, ex- can be extended beyond the particulars which have been enumerated. Can extend beyond the particulars which have been enumerated. And to put a nail in Jackson's coffin, here is Lyman Trumbull, who actually wrote the Civil Rights Act. Quote, The bill is applicable exclusively to civil rights. It is not proposed to regulate political rights of individuals. It has nothing to do with the right of suffrage or any other political right. End quote. Trumbull was from Illinois. So, if you're going to make the argument that the 14th Amendment was designed as Jackson does, and she says it, right? Because she goes back to the Civil Rights Act. It was to provide the constitutional foundation for the Civil Rights Act. She says it specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. Lyman Trumbull, who wrote the bill, is saying this is not political rights at all. Representative Wilson of Massachusetts is saying, well, here's what these things are. You have access to, you can protect property and liberty and life. Essentially, life, liberty, and property is what you're looking at. And you have access to the court. So this is what this is all about. So when people call Jackson an originalist, she's not. And in any way, not even a progressive originalist. She's not anything but a distortionist. That's what's important to understand. That's why you listen to this podcast. Because you might read this and say, well, gosh, it sounds like she's on to something here. Lefties read it, and yeah, Jackson, she's so smart, she's so good. No, not really. In either way, right? She's distorting everything. And if you know any of the history, well, it's very clear she's distorting. Because she's using 21st century uh, notions of equity and applying that to an 1866 bill. If we want to go back to 1866, well, here's what they said has nothing to do with politics. And the 14th Amendment and the effort to incorporate here, which is what she's trying to do, is a massive distortion of what that was designed to do. We can go right back. Again, Get Government by Judiciary, Raoul Berger. If you want the book on how the left, the progressives, have completely distorted the meaning of the 14th Amendment, that's it. And I've had, there are people that I know that have said that book completely changed their mind on federalism and how the courts and federal courts are using the 14th Amendment. Now, of course, the smear is that Berger was, you know, he was a racist, a white supremacist, whatever. This is what they're going to say about the man when he's simply pointing out, well, this is not what the what the bill actually did. It's not what the 14th Amendment actually did. It's not what the Civil Rights Act actually did. I'm just going back and looking at the evidence here. So you can make up your own mind after you read the book, but I think it's pretty airtight after you read that. And then, of course, how you look at what, when you look at what people said about these amendments or the amendment itself, the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act, 
it's pretty clear that Jackson is way off base in her interpretation of that, her historical interpretation. She is not a very good historian and clearly uh, already not a very good justice. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.